What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. We'll spend this hour on Palestine today exploring a variety of commentaries and reflections. We'll start with Nadia Tanous, a Bay Area organizer with the Palestinian Youth Movement. Then we'll hear from Bay Area legacy activist and teacher Rick Ayers. Then to our comrade Boots Riley, and I'll close out our show with my own commentary. As I mentioned, the first reflection you'll hear is from Nadia Tanous, who has been organizing to stop Israel's ongoing genocide in Gaza as a member of the Palestinian youth movement. She's a passionate community organizer and writer born and raised in the Bay Area. Nadia is also the deputy director of Honor the Earth, an indigenous-led environmental justice organization tackling climate disaster at its root causes. This reflection was recorded at an event at La Peña Cultural Center on November 19th called Thanks Taken, Rethinking Thanksgiving. You'll hear Nadia draw connections between indigenous movements here in the colonized United States and in Palestine. Assalamu alaikum. It's me Nadia um, hey y'all, my name is Nadia Tonnous. My people are from Yaffa and Lid, which are the areas along the coast of Palestine. One third of the refugees in the Gaza Strip today are from my village. In 1948, my grandparents survived the Nekba, which emptied out 97% of Yaffa. That's how the people in the Gaza Strip got there. Growing up here in the Bay Area, I always knew that I was not from here. And I was very adamant in asking my mother in particular and my grandparents, where did we come from? And so if we're from Palestine, who's from here? I was really lucky when I was 17 years old to meet Ante Karina Gould as she was organizing around um, stopping the desecration of the Emeryville Shell Mound. And it's through relationship building that I came to understand not just what it means to be Palestinian, but what it means to be removed from my land to live in exile and to be forced to live in someone else's. What is our responsibility? What do you do with that? Um, a lot of you, I'm sure, have been watching the news around what's happening in Palestine. I do not have family in the Gaza Strip. I do have family in 48, the 48 territories. They're Palestinian citizens of Israel. And I can tell you that on October 8th, my cousins were rounded up and they've been in prison ever since. We also lost my uncle, who was a Nekba survivor. He would tell us stories about what it was like before the State of Israel was created. I'm named after his wife, Nadia, which means hope. Fundamentally, I'm here, obviously, in a state of mourning. But something to share is that this is not an individual grief. It's a collective one. What Israel has been trying to do to the Palestinian people over 75 years of extended exile, extermination, imprisonment, and torture is to kill our spirit. 
and they have not yet succeeded, even in the face of genocide. And they won't. The sacrifice that we give as Palestinians is with the central demands that actually we believe are ours, that hold our people together. These are rights that I as a Palestinian individual can't barter or sell or give away. And they're not just the rights of having water, food, and access to free movement, which every human being should be allowed, and which we as Palestinians have not had for the past 40 days in the Gaza Strip, and which Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and at the refugee camps in Jordan and Lebanon and in Syria, we have not been given those rights for the past 75 years. These are four generations where we have been denied that which is why the demands center on things like dignity. The demands that we have and the rights that we have of the Palestinian people are the return of all refugees to our homeland, the full liberation of our homeland from the river to the sea, the freedom for all political prisoners, and self-determination for our people. Those are the demands that unite us as a people. They cannot be bartered or sold. So when you hear, and if you hear a Palestinian from the bureaucratic colonial government that was set in the Oslo period, 1993, in order to capitulate or to trade our struggle, don't listen to them. Because this is the second stage of colonization. And 75 years in, I'm humbled by the fact that that's where we're at because I'm standing here and sharing this program with people who have been struggling for over 500. And that's not lost on me. And so fundamentally, when we look at the layers of colonialism, another one that's coming for us is bureaucratic colonialism, which means that when they can't break the collective, the colonizer picks out individuals who look like you, who speak like you, and who are from you in order to sell out the others, right? I'm 31 years old. I was born in the post-Oslo era. That means that I, as a Palestinian, grew up in San Francisco, grew up in the Bay Area, which has the third largest Palestinian population in the United States. I grew up here without a single functioning Arab or Palestinian institution. Why is that? That's because we are living in the post-Oslo era. That's the era of politics that dictates everything else that you see in front of you. I'm gonna break it down as quickly as possible. In 1993, the Israelis and the Americans selected some folks who look like us and are from us in order to negotiate away our struggle. And they undercut something called the Madrid Accords, which you all can look up more later. The Oslo Accords in 1993 and 1994 said a couple of things. One was that they would create something called the Palestinian Authority, which would barter on our behalf, negotiate on our behalf. It also separated out the Palestinian people. It said, you Palestinians who are in 48, in the 48 territories, you're an internal Israeli problem. Palestinians in the refugee camps in Lebanon and in Jordan and Syria and Egypt, you're an internal problem to those countries. We're so sorry, we can't help you. 
Palestinians who are in the so-called United States, so-called Canada or the far diaspora, you just gotta become American, become Canadian, enter into this melting pot, dissolve, right? our struggle, dissolve our identity. Oslo also is what folks refer to when they talk about the creation of a Palestinian state without actually having our land base. How are you gonna have a state with no land? How's there self-determination for indigenous people without land? Doesn't make sense. So fundamentally, when we look at this colonial project, this is part of our work as the Palestinian youth movement. It's organizing Palestinians in the diaspora and at home to say that we are no less Palestinian than our brothers and sisters and siblings who are on the ground in Palestine. 50% of the Palestinian people live in exile. And fundamentally, I am not an American. I am a Palestinian born in the United States. What does that mean for me? It means that my difference between myself and my cousin who lives in 48, myself and a relative of mine who lives in the Gaza Strip, is our conditions. It's the conditions that we live under. It's not the proximity to our rights to our struggle. It's not the proximity to the rights of our freedom. Something else that that means, and that, sorry, just to say it helps a lot because when we're talking about being in diaspora, it brings a lot of sickness. Ghurba, or the word gharab in Arabic, means exile. It means to literally be estranged from yourself, to be a stranger to yourself. When we talk about demanding a right of return for the Palestinian people, I'm talking about literally returning to my homeland. Just like Lambak, it's not a figure of speech. It's a literal demand. And when we say from the river to the sea, or when we say Lambak, what we're often met with is fear, which is actually rooted in racism. Thinking that the history that we have inherited of violence, the history that we have inherited of violence from colonization is what we as indigenous people are going to offer to the world in the future. We are not the colonizers. We never have been. People ask me as a Palestinian, do I see the humanity of somebody who's Jewish? There's a genocide going on and you have the audacity to talk to me about humanity? You know what my grandparents did when they arrived on the shores of Yaffa and Lit from the concentration camps? You know what the women of Yaffa did? The ancestors of the people who are being murdered right now in the Gaza Strip? They fed them. Because that's what you do in terms of humanity. But here's the trick. We didn't lay down and let colonization happen to us. We fought back. And we as the Palestinian people make a commitment, not just to our ancestors who have sacrificed or to our siblings who are being ravaged and killed in this moment while being questioned about our humanity. We are here making a pledge to our future, to our children. That's why as the Gaza Strip is being starved to death, on the second week of this onslaught, y'all, the Palestinian adults in the Gaza Strip made a child eat first policy. Did y'all know that? Saying that the children of the Gaza Strip, 50% of our population, the 1.2 million of them, they eat first, they drink first. Because if the only people who make it out of this are our children, at least we have a future. That is the commitment that we've made. That's the commitment that the adults in the Gaza Strip have continued to make. And that is the love and the fierceness with which we fight for our people, for our land, and for our demands. 
They cannot kill our spirit. I'm going to finish here. Um, there's much more to say, but thank you for letting me have this time. I'm going to finish here by reading a poem by Samih Al-Qasim. Does anyone know who that is? He was made famous maybe here in terms of um, movement circles because his book was found in the cell of George Jackson after he was murdered in Soledad. And actually, George Jackson's name was put on this book because they couldn't figure out who had written it. This is a testament also to the long history of international struggle and relationships that we come from. I'm not here by myself. I'm here standing on the shoulders of so many people who have come before me, both my people and not. So I want to end my comments before I read this poem just to say that as Palestinians, we are also taught something. It's central to the way that we're supposed to live our lives, which is that no matter where we are, we are supposed to fight for the justice of the people in the context where we live. It is the central lesson that at our best, we are not just supposed to fight for ourselves. If we want it for ourselves, we want it for everybody else. And that is the commitment that if we do not always live by, it is something that is centrally taught to us by our elders. And so I'm here, humbled to be here. Thank you for having me. And in perpetual commitment and struggle and solidarity with my indigenous siblings, my black siblings, my refugee immigrant siblings, who are here fighting for justice because it's our right every single one of us. And in the layers of colonialism that we inherit from this system, I know that we can all move forward with the wisdom to do right by each and every one of us. Um, but I take y'all's leadership. Enemy of the Sun by Samih Al-Qasim. I may, if you wish, lose my livelihood. I may sell my shirt and bed. I may work as a stone cutter, a street sweeper, a porter. I may clean your stores or rummage your garbage for food. I may lay down hungry, O oh enemy of the sun, but I shall not compromise. And to the last pulse in my veins, I shall resist. You may take the last strip of my land, feed my youth to prison cells. You may plunder my heritage. You may burn my books, my poems, or feed my flesh to the dogs. You may spread a web of terror on the roofs of my village, O enemy of the sun. But I shall not compromise. And to the lies, you may deprive me of my mother's kisses. You may curse my father and my people. You may distort my history. You may deprive my children of a smile and of life's necessities. You may fool my friends with a borrowed face. You may glue my eyes to humiliation, O enemy of the sun. But I shall not compromise. And to the last pulse in my veins, I shall resist. O enemy of the sun. The decorations are raised at the port. Ejaculations fill the air. A glow in the hearts and in the horizon, a sail is seen challenging the wind and the depths. It is Field Marshal Daydan Kamathi Maumau, returning home from the sea of loss. It is the return of the sun, of my exiled ones. And for her sake and his, I swear, 
I shall not compromise. And to the last pulse in my veins, I shall resist, resist, and resist. Thank you. That was the voice of Palestinian youth movement organizer Nadia Tanous, recorded on November 19th at an annual La Peña Cultural Center event called Thanks Taken, Rethinking Thanksgiving. We're going to transition now to a commentary by Bay Area activist and longtime educator Rick Ayers. Rick publishes writing on a personal blog every once in a while. We saw his most recent post about the Israeli bombardment of Gaza called Echoes of the American War in Vietnam. And so we invited him to contribute it as a commentary to Law and Disorder. Here's Rick Ayers with his latest commentary. Echoes of the American War in Vietnam. We are living in perilous, frustrating, horrendous times. It's hard to do anything, brush your teeth, take a walk, read a book, without remembering that now, right now, bombs are falling on families in Gaza, bombs made in the USA. As a child of the Vietnam War era, I can't help that familiar feeling. What can we do? It isn't enough. And what will we tell our grandchildren we were doing? while the bombs were falling. Clearly the two periods, the two conflicts, the two dilemmas are different in so many ways, but there are disturbing similarities, some of which are infuriating and some that might give us reason for hope. Let me explain. First, there is the dreadful logic of counterinsurgency warfare, the thinking of the rich military powers that hold total air superiority and very little on the ground, We're not against the civilians, U.S. generals in Vietnam declared, but we have to make them suffer enough that they will kick out the bad guerrillas who are the reason the bombs are falling. This crime that claimed to be a strategy justified the cowardly practice of 10-year pounding air war, which inevitably had the opposite effect. At Ben Tre in 1968, an American major declared, we had to destroy the town to save it. That's the logic of Israel's war on Gaza, a pre-announced genocide. Another parallel is the dehumanization of those being bombed. The comments of the Israeli war minister that we are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly is only one example among many. I well remember being in U.S. Army boot camp. We were subjected to a regular diet of racist othering of Asians, Gooks, slopes, mama sounds. American General William Westmoreland declared, The Oriental doesn't put the same high price on life as does the Westerner. Life is plentiful. Life is cheap in the Orient. Biden and Netanyahu and all their supporters think nothing of the children being blown up, trapped under rubble, burned with phosphorus bombs. They are just the cost of policy. Which brings me to the next horror of the logic of imperialism. It is the delusion that military might, the ability to project violence, to tear bodies apart, is how a war is won. American generals have always been frustrated. We won every battle. We beat the enemy every time we faced them. But the truth is that the outcome of the conflict only depends partially on military force. Equally important are the moral, psychological, and political dimensions. The U.S. inflicted unspeakable military suffering on the Vietnamese people, but was steadily losing the war. 
Israel's isolation, the exposures of the horrors of the war and occupation do more damage than bombs. Needless to say, all of these blunders, costing hundreds of millions of lives, making billions of dollars for the war industries, destroying thousands of veterans' lives, were repeated in Iraq and Afghanistan. It is the dead-end logic of imperialism. On the other side, what do we learn from the Vietnam era about movement building and resistance to the war? We tend to look back on that period with a single lens. There was a war, everyone agreed that the draft was terrible, there was a huge anti-war movement. But it was not such a straight line. Today it can be frightening to see the kinds of assaults and repression people face for opposing the ethnic cleansing and bombing in Gaza. Campus groups are banned, job offers are withdrawn, people are fired, lives are threatened. Social media shadow bans criticism of the war. University presidents bow to demands from ultra-Zionists. In Israel, it is worse. Anyone voicing any doubts about apartheid or the war faces firing and often beatings. But remember that back then the powerful did everything they could to squash opposition to the American war in Vietnam. In 1965, 70% of Americans supported the war. Dissent was met with repression, imprisonment, firing, and slander. Protesters were called anti-patriotic, sullying the memories of those Americans who were killed. The government subpoenaed membership lists of anti-war organizations. The press, from local outlets to the New York Times, ridiculed the movement as spoiled and misguided kids. In time, yes, Americans' disgust with the war grew. In time, the heart of the anti-war movement became the soldiers themselves and the veterans who had come back from the horror and were eager to expose the war crimes that were rampant. But it took courage and constant organizing to reach that point. In many ways, the exposure of the criminal enterprise of the occupation has proceeded more rapidly. The shift in understanding the colonial project has been broad and deep. The self-proclaimed fascist in Israel, like the finance minister Bezalel Smotrich, can continue to spin their fantasy of domination, but the ground is crumbling under them. As people around the world come to understand the reality of occupation and mass murder, the possibility of a just solution seems more attainable than ever. And here at KPFA, we're doing our best to help our movements, support our movements, move closer to that just solution. That was the voice of longtime Bay Area teacher and activist Rick Ayers. We'll transition again to another commentary. A week ago today, last Monday afternoon, more than 600 anti-Zionist Jewish people and supporters gathered to protest Israel's genocide in Gaza and to demand a ceasefire. Our Law and Disorder team was there, that's myself, along with Kat Brooks as participants, and in the largest civil disobedience and direct action demonstration of Jewish people on the West Coast probably ever, we occupied the Oakland Federal Building with organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace and the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network leading us. The event was filled with mournful song as well as high-energy chants. We demanded a ceasefire from our federal government that's been funding Israel's war machine to the tune of $3.8 billion every year. Here's one of those songs of grief.
just heard sounds from inside the Oakland Federal Building this Monday, where more than 600 Jewish community members and allies staged the largest Jewish direct action protest on the West Coast probably ever. Along with the many hundreds in our community, I was there along with my friend and Oakland filmmaker and rapper Boots Riley. Partway through the evening, Boots was asked to speak publicly about the genocide in Gaza. It was a raucous crowd with no sound system, so I'll apologize ahead of time if parts of this next speech are hard to understand. Let's listen to what Boots Riley had to say about the hundreds of anti-Zionist Jewish protesters at the Oakland Federal Building a week ago today. This is the largest Jewish mass civil disappearance in the Bay Area. <laughs> the out there is that Jews support Israel. Jews support bombing of Gaza. And they put that narrative to manufacture consent from everyone else. That's my name. The truth is that the government of Israel does not represent the Jewish people. Democratically control the wealth that they create with our 
And that is something that will really be a land that's for the people. That will be real democracy. And that's the thing that we're ultimately fighting for. But right now what we're fighting for is a ceasefire to stop the bombing. A lot of people are scared for their livelihoods. A lot of people are scared that people will think that they're that they're on the wrong side. Now, what you're doing is important in that whole conversation. What this is is something that will change the way people interact with this struggle. We need everybody to stay here and keep fighting and let everyone know that this is the right side to be on, that this is what you gotta raise your voice about, that it's right now, and it's important. And so thank you for, for being here. It's gonna be a audio from inside the Oakland Federal Building recorded a week ago today when 600 anti-Zionist Jews and allies occupied that building, shutting it down in support of a ceasefire in Palestine. Just before that song, you heard the voice of Boots Riley speaking from the Federal Building as a participant in that shutdown. You're listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. I'm Jesse Strauss. In this show, I hold space as a producer and a host, and I'm guided by journalistic intent and practices, certainly not an artificial space of objectivity, which I don't believe exists, but from a space of discovery. I see my role here as helping to curate an understanding of what's happening in the world around us as we make choices about how to participate in it. If my job is to curate information about the world around us and to compel us to participate in that world with intention, I do so with the work itself. I try not to tell you what to think, but to form interviews and content around the impact of the world on the most marginalized among us. When we talk about Israel's bombardment of Gaza, for example, I work to bring on guests who can speak to the experience of the people directly impacted by that military assault, 
that's Palestinians themselves for the most part, but I feel compelled to speak now from a different space. And here I'm using the access I have to these airwaves to share something that I imagine, I hope, will resonate with our listeners. I've been in a deep space of grief for the past weeks. Learning of the untimely deaths of so many people has impacted me, has hurt me, and in some moments in an entirely overwhelming way. From my conversations with friends and family, I've gathered that my grief experience right now is not unique. And I think it's extremely important to acknowledge that. I've experienced grief before. I'm not a grief expert, but the combination of textbook genocidal actions and intentions by the state of Israel and the constant violation of basic human rights and the international laws of war being inflicted on the Palestinian people who've remained in their indigenous land has created, I believe, a collective experience of grief for those of us who are paying attention Something unique in the modern context where we can actually see the impacts of war, not just in the 24-hour news cycle, but also in the immediate social resources that we engage with on our phones and computers that are part of most of our daily lives. It's overwhelming. What does it mean to learn of many thousands of lives taken in just a few weeks? How do we hold that and move forward knowing that, at least in this country, our political actors who believe they represent us have been constantly building Israel's war machine for decades? Far beyond acceptance, this country has actively encouraged the warmongering of Israel against the Palestinian people. And when I say warmongering, I certainly do mean the ongoing genocidal acts in Gaza. But I also mean the 15-year siege on Gaza, the 530-plus Israeli military checkpoints in the West Bank, the more than 5,000 Palestinians that have been held hostage in Israeli prison facilities prior to this latest, more visible round of warfare, and the broader 75 years of occupation. I want to place myself in context of this grief. I'm from Oakland. I'm ethnically Eastern European Jewish. My mom and her parents came to the U.S. as refugees just after the Jewish Holocaust, where we experienced collective racialized punishment that killed most of my family. The fact that my grandparents were able to survive in various kinds of hiding still amazes me, as I grew up with the stories of hopelessness that includes my grandfather taking his first wife and two daughters, ages 11 and 14, to hopeful safety only to learn that they were killed by fascists very soon thereafter. I grew up with a sense of grief knowing that, for whatever reason, some politically opportunist or distorted, the world rallied against the fascist forces that tried to take out a whole people, my people. That grief was passed down in my family, and it was present in some Jewish spaces I found myself in, but I did not experience it outside of specifically Jewish spaces, meaning, sure, maybe a synagogue, but also my friend's house or my grandparents' house or my cousin's house. It was the difference between learning fundamentally about the Holocaust, that it was wrong, and the world agreed, which we all did, versus, say, learning at age 19 that my mom experienced the emotional weight of German fascist violence against our people in a visceral discomfort with me driving a German-made Volkswagen. And I've inherited, and I think justifiably, a distrust for the efficiency of development that still characterizes so many things we know about Germany I'm saying all this for context, and to be specific, I don't want to compare the ongoing genocide in Gaza to the Jewish Holocaust in Europe. I don't think that kind of comparison is useful. I do think, though, that trying to understand my own inherited collective grief, which I think just about all Jews experience regardless of a direct familial relationship to the Jewish Holocaust, could help us understand what it means to grieve collectively for the constantly increasing number of victims of the ongoing genocide. 
It's hard and it's lonely because there's no way we could possibly hold without loneliness the deaths of all generations of 45 Palestinian families or thousands and thousands of Palestinian people in Gaza who are being bombed relentlessly. And yes, grieving the deaths of the Palestinians who've been killed in the past few weeks and also the Israelis who were killed on October 7th and vitally the hundreds or thousands killed in each of the many years prior in colonized Palestine. Each day now, we learn of more details of destruction and death, and we have more and more to grieve. I've realized that what all of this points me to is a deep understanding that modern Zionism does not make any of us safer, very much including Jews. Zionism tells us that it needs to maintain a military occupation and impose itself onto every day-to-day aspect of life for Palestinians in the name of safety for Jewish people. To me, it leads to a very simple question with an even simpler answer. Has it worked? Have Israel's colonial policies made Jews safer? Have they made anyone else safer? It's with more clarity in this moment than any other I can remember that the answer is no. We talk often on this radio show about abolition, and we've referred frequently to an analysis that all violence is state violence. When I say that all violence is state violence, I mean that even the violence that we see enacted from one disempowered community member onto another comes from the lack of resources at the grassroots level to deal with things like poverty, mental health treatment, houselessness, healthy food access, and quality education, all combined with the ever-increasing resources for policing and imprisonment in this country. We have unending dollars for those institutions that I think we can basically all agree do not fix social problems that persist in the U.S. If prisons and police did in fact fix our problems as the most incarcerated developed nation on the planet, we would also be the safest. It is actually that simple. Just like militarization of our local communities with policing and imprisonment does not actually make us safer, neither do military systems that are built out of an idea of safety. Who really believes that we can arrest our way to safety? Who really believes that we can bomb our way to peace? Can we agree that Jews are not actually safer in this world because Israel exists as a religious military state? I would say these past two weeks have shown us very clearly that it does not. So who does feel like they're made safer by the state of Israel? And why Does the U.S. fund Israel's war machine to the tune of $3.8 billion per year? Here's one, although just partial, answer. A 2017 survey by a group called LifeWay Research that reached more than 2,000 evangelical Christians showed that 76% agree that Christians should support the Jewish people's right to live in the sovereign state of Israel. There is somewhere in the area of 80 million, maybe more, Christian evangelicals in this country That means at least 60 million evangelical Christians in the U.S. support the state of Israel. Take that number compared to just 7 million Jews who live in the U.S. And among that 7 million, we have very different thoughts about what Israel has the right to. Israel's existence as a militarized religious state does not keep Jews safe. Does it keep evangelicals safe? Just before a hospital in Gaza was bombed, killing 500 Palestinians getting care and taking shelter there, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu painfully articulated and quickly deleted an eye-opening tweet saying that the bombardment of Gaza was, quote, a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle. 
It's hard to imagine a more Christian and white supremacist justification for colonizing and destroying a people, a dehumanized dark people who wage the law of the jungle against the humanistic light people. So safety for whom and from what? If this is a battle for evangelical Christian values, it clarifies that propping up the military religious state of Israel is justified not by sharing a historically shared land, but using that land to evangelize a value system on people who have made it clear don't want to be imposed on. So how do we challenge the militarization of Christianity and white supremacist values? More specifically, how could we work toward safety without military-enforced apartheid dividing a land between, in Netanyahu's words, the children of light and the children of darkness? How could we work toward the safety of all without waging someone's safety against another's? In terms of we've learned from grassroots movement against white supremacy in this country, the defunding of police and prisons and the use of those funds to address at the root the things that we know lead to harm and violence, things like I mentioned earlier, like poverty, access to quality education and food, etc. I'd like to build from that analysis and apply it to Israel, too. If Zionism doesn't actually make Jews or Palestinians or maybe anyone safer, then we should defund it and reuse those resources. Now, most of us, or probably all of our listeners right now, have no immediate control of the militarization and funding of the state of Israel. We've seen calls to action for us to call our federal political representatives to ask for a ceasefire or the interruption of the U.S. blank check for Israel. Sure, we should make those calls. I certainly have. But this brings me back to where I started, to the collective experience of grief that we are experiencing as we learn of more very public killings and collective punishment each day. I mentioned that the grief feels lonely, and I think it feels lonely because there's not enough of a way we can process it while it's happening and have an impact on stopping it. I will call Congress, but when it comes down to it, I think that our political representatives have known what they're doing in regard to Israel for a very long time. And they won't be swayed against Zionism by receiving phone calls. In that regard, I do feel powerless. And especially for those of us who are white, we've been taught for our whole damn lives that our voices matter, that we can weaponize our feelings to have an impact on the things that give us bad feelings, right? In the most crass terms, we see that in the barbecue Beckys who call the cops because they held discomfort regardless that their discomfort was guided by racism, and that they feel, for good reason, entitled to call the police to come and defend them from something that gave them a bad feeling. And the good reason I refer to here is that they're engaging the police for the exact reason that police exist, to protect white supremacy. I'll give a less crass example. Right now, I, white man with some amount of power over these airwaves, have decided that my own feelings are important enough to interrupt usual programming because of how heavily I've been impacted by grief and how I've decided as producer of this show that I'd curate my own voice because I'm assuming that you, our listeners, could relate to it. I want to take a breath and marinate with the knowledge that we're being impacted right now by the war in Palestine and that we're sharing a moment of grief. If you've made it this far with me, if you haven't turned off your radio yet, I want to offer you an invitation, a call. Who have you turned to for emotional comfort for other life challenges? Can you turn to them now? It's worth sharing grief for the loss of a people with our loving and also our politically frustrating relatives. Because maybe 
just maybe they can hold us in that grief and see the humanity of the Palestinian people through it. I'll say that again. Just maybe our loved ones can hold us in that grief and see the humanity of the Palestinian people through it. If there were ever a time to convince those who care for you that the long-term and ongoing violence inflicted on Palestinian people by the state of Israel is wrong and does not make Jews or any of us safer, it might be right now. Seriously, call your cousin and your uncle and your mom and your college friend and your weed dealer, and if you grew up with folks who are part of networks of Christian evangelicals in this country, call them. And tell them you're hurting and tell them you're tired and tell them you can't continue to bear witness to more press conferences of doctors surrounded by piles of dead bodies. And you are terrified to see images of scrawny, malnourished survivors who somehow found enough fresh water to survive in hiding while their family was slaughtered. Tell them that you need your grief to be held by the people who say they care for you. And I'll say a third time, just maybe they can hold us in that grief and see the humanity of the Palestinian people through it. We are not alone. May we bear witness together. Good morning, Free Palestine. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>